This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I am your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, <laughs> Mr. Blue Check verified himself, Jamar Tismi. I'm gonna let Bo keep that in, bro. <laughs> yes, even the great Tyler Burns somehow, sometimes fallible on the mic. Come on, man. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all know these people though. We be uh, just stuttering and messing up and doing all this stuff and saying words that don't make sense. But let me tell you this beforehand, what threw me off was actually that. Jamar was making fun of my city, y'all, and I stand Pensacola. Make one, okay, okay. I stand that's, my that's city. That's how we bro. gonna call America's it. America's first settlement. I stand <laughs> my city. Okay, so you're repping the imperialism. I see. Nah, man, I, I, we have no choice. We have no choice but to stand. You have no choice but to stand. Unpack that. Unpack that. <laughs> it's a it's a meme. You know that meme that meme where Rihanna's standing out there with her hands out, and then the the headline is "We have no choice but to stand." Ah, it's a meme. Yeah, see, see, light years, light years. Come on, Uncle Uncle Culture. Culture. (laughs) Come on, Uncle Culture. Bring it back, man. Come on, bring it back. I'm I'm, I'm old school. Rep your city. All right. I remember that one. We got to, man. Come on. We got to. And it's it's enough black folk in the cola, man. Aaron James from, you know, he's not from the cola, but he lives in the cola. He's basically a native now. So shout out to Aaron James. This Everybody got on the radar. Let me remind you. This got on the radar. Sorry, folks, but we get we we, we gotta we gotta unpack this for a second. Okay. And when Black Panther came out, you said we had to do our very first pass the mic tour stop, pass the mic yeah. live event in Pensacola, Florida, and watch Black Panther. And the rest of the witness team was like, Pensacola. Hold really? Up. That, that was, <laughs> was it not the best meal you had on the whole tour? Number one, okay, cooked in my church. <laughs> Wasn't it the two. only meal that we had cooked in the church? Okay, yeah, hey, I'll give you my, that hey, one. I give you that y'all one. Set that up. I set it up for my city. Okay, I want to <laughs> roll out the red carpet for y'all. I want to give y'all a good Southern home style meal, home cooked at the church. Come on, man. I, <laughs> I set it up for y'all, and we saying. and we got to see Black Panther. That's where we the got a whole block began. of tickets. But no, the standing began long before that. But y'all forget that Aaron James lives. Y'all need to stop playing <laughs> with me. Every time, every time Pensacola does something wild, what do I hear? <laughs> Tyler, get your mans, get your people. You the rep, you Trump the official ambassador. Get your mans. Sorry, don't, you didn't... don't nobody say nothing to Aaron. They talking to me. <laughs> Aaron's low key with it. He ain't in your Aaron face has seniority. It. Aaron has seniority. He's got the anointing and the beard. Come on. All right. Let and me, he's let me a give former it, Marine. Let me give the people one more thing before we get yeah. into it, because this is going to be a heavy episode. But but I got to tell you, I had a potentially uh, uh, path-defining culinary experience. 
What? Okay, yo, you got to tell me about this because I haven't heard about this. We talked for like an hour before this recording <laughs> and you did not tell me about this. We were talking about big things, big things. This is relatively little on the scale, but I, I, I need to say it in case somebody needs a blessing. So okay. uh, uh, my friend um, uh, Russ Whitfield, who's a pastor in D.C., he had on his Instagram that he had smoked a, a, a meat that I have never smoked before. Now, it's not a crazy meat like, you know, I don't know, ostrich or something like that. Alligator, which we do alligator. Come on through to the cola. Come on through to the Uh A5. Here we go again. That's why you get all the smoke. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a ribeye. We ain't got no alligator down here. He smoked a ribeye. So he smoked a ribeye. Yeah, which is, you know, it's a small enough cut of meat that you don't think to smoke it, but he did. Okay. And so I looked up how to do it. It was really simple, you know, the 30, 40 minutes and in indirect heat and whatnot. Anyway, I did it today on while we're recording today. It was it was an experience, man. It was amazing because you had the sweetness wow. of the smile. I did a pecan hickory blend and it was offset. So it was just what is real this? juicy. And then you finish it off over the over the direct heat, over the flames. We got the witness sauces. Grill. We got the witness barbecue Ooh, sauces. Brother. I used the I used the Lone Star rub, which is my favorite rub. And oh my goodness. I just had a little baked what? potato with it, you know, whatever, whatever. But it was on the Sabbath, and I was like, okay, so this is what heaven's gonna be like. It was amazing. <laughs> it was amazing. It's the little. I didn't things, know you had bro. The, you had you got a smoker. You got a smoker oh, at the, at the grill? I, every week when, when summer hits. It's grilling season. It's grilling. The Jamari only reason I celebrate Fourth of July so I can grill. <laughs> <laughs> what to the slave is the party trip? That's my essay. <laughs> What to the slave are these chicken wings? Oh. Uh, <laughs> Jamari never see. I rolled out the red carpet for Jamari when he came to Pensacola. Y'all, never y'all didn't come to out. the Delta. You ain't never, never been to the, me Delta. Out to the Delta. Don't pretend like you know the Delta. <laughs> no, I don't. You're right. I don't know nothing. <laughs> anyway, we being silly, man, because you know we have a heavy topic. And actually, you know, before we get into this, I a lot of this joy is a reflection of what we desire. Um, to see at the Joy and Justice Conference on October 4th and 5th, Ebenezer Missionary Baptist Church, Chicago, Illinois, is fast approaching. And uh, it's come to my attention, and and really I realize this, that we haven't had a chance to sit down and really talk about it. I want to promise that we're going to do that in the episode just to unpack our whole philosophy of Joy and Justice, because just a case for 10 reasons why you should attend the conference. But I just want to say it's good. Every time I talk with Jamar, Jamar and I obviously don't live in the same city, but when we get together, when we're able to talk, we're able to FaceTime, we're able to see each other in person, there's like this sweet communion that happens between brothers, between the family of God. And that actually, I feel my soul healing in that moment. Like you can feel it. Like you feel that this is not just an interaction between friends or an interaction between colleagues or peers, but that it's actually a a spiritual transfer um, of brotherhood. And that the Lord works in that, that the spirit is present. There is no price that you can put on that. I couldn't put a price on my friendship with Jamar, my friendship with the team at The Witness. Um, I've had some conversations with people, good and difficult conversations of, of struggles and trials that they're going through on this team this week. And God has moved and God has worked in our hearts. And I feel like we're closer at the end of it. I feel like we can say some things we can't say to other people. And that's a dynamic that we aim to see at the Joy and Justice Conference. We encourage you to not delay, to grab a couple of friends and meet some other friends there, maybe for the first time in person in Chicago, Illinois at joyandjustice.com is where you can get your tickets. 
And it is a phenomenal experience of not just um, communion, but also intellectual exchange as well. There's going to be rich theology. It's all going to be on an accessible level. So it's not just for academics or seminarians. If you're a stay-at-home mom, if you're um, an engineer, if you're a first responder, whoever you may be, this will enrich your life as well. So we encourage you, go to joinjustice.com. We'll talk about it more in the future. But Jamar, I appreciate you, man. I just can't wait till people see us laughing on the stage at the conference this October, man. I know you're excited about it too. Yo, that smooth segue, how we were talking about one thing, and then you introduced that conference that made up for that little stumble in the intro. So, yeah, you got it. You got it. <laughs> I appreciate it, man. The Lord, <laughs> hey, now unto him who is able <laughs> to it. keep you. Nah, but yo, so last week we we talked about why we don't attend a black church. Now, this was just a general topic because I attend a black church and a lot of the people who are listening do, but we wanted to honestly critique this idea that we have a quiet exodus. And if we have a quiet exodus, we're talking about where is the promised land? And so that's the question that we've had is why isn't it just the black church? It could be for some people in African spirituality, it could be in the white evangelical um, multi-ethnic church, or it could be in some other things. But what we ask the question of is, is why not the black church? It seems so obvious. Like why wouldn't it be the black church? And so we brought up some concerns, some honest concerns. It was difficult to critique the black church, but at the same time, I think it's healthy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, um, but the kisses of the enemy are deceitful. So we recognize that um, we have to be honest and that people are dealing with trauma. And we were supposed to record an episode that was kind of the flip side of that, why the black church is so beautiful. But we were inundated with responses of people who were very honest, some public responses and some private responses, of people who bared their soul and said that I feel a transparent connection with everything that you said and told us some stories that stopped us in our tracks. And some of these Jamar hasn't even heard. Um, so he'll be hearing them for the first time on this podcast. But we just kind of took a step back and said, we need to leave space for the people who are dealing with trauma that every time we mention the black church and we mention her so glowingly, and we talk about the preaching, we talk about whether it's the music or the community or the rich theology or the activism or the justice or all these things or the legacy, we have to recognize that some people are triggered and traumatized. And so we want to leave some space today for people um, and, and you know not limited to, but including these people who have sent us these amazing messages that have gripped our hearts and, and driven us to our knees in prayer um, in, some, in some cases. So Jamar, anything, anything more you want to say to that before we get into it? Because um, you know, we we kind of pray beforehand. We kind of set aside, you know, set our set our our egos to the side. We kind of took deep breaths <laughs> as we were talking about this. We just we said, man, we have to create some space for lament. So, anything more you want to say about that? Yeah, I just want to frame it to where um, there's many different ways to respond to church hurt, and it seems to be a trend now that people simply leave the church in response to the pain there. And and that's not what we're talking about. We totally understand like like it's just really difficult situations and so there's empathy there. Um where I'm coming from is is a perspective of we can't heal what we don't reveal, right? That's what the album that's said. Good. That's good. That's good. Um and so this is what we're talking about. We're talking about healing ultimately. But the path toward healing is through the pain, not around it, not avoiding it. 
And so we seek to honor the church and we seek to honor the black church. So we're not of those who would look at the black church and insult the church um, because this is Christ's body. At the same time, it's filled with sinners. And so we know it's (laughs) far from perfect. In fact, it's painful sometimes. And so that's where we are. And the hope is that it would lead to healing ultimately. But we do need to make space for this. We do need to make space for lament. We do need to make space for the heaviness. For if you think about music, there's space for the blues. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's there the, has it, to be, and you have to have that. And so, you know, maybe this is one of our blues episodes. Hmm. Yeah. Well, let's get into it, man. We're going to read um, about five or six of these comments. You know, as much as we have space and time for, um, and then kind of reflect on them, and and maybe not even respond to them as much as just sit in them and try to come into solidarity with them. Uh, the first one, as soon as we released the episode, um, one of my followers reached out and she said, uh, her name is Reverend Dr. Shannon on, on Twitter, but she said, I appreciate the acknowledgement of misogynoir um, in the black church. Many black women are not allowed to fully exercise their leadership gifts. And, th- and then this part just just shook me. She said, last week when I eulogized my dad, it was evident how uncomfortable the male ministers were with my presence and title. Um, you know, I, I can't begin to process the level of pain. And if you if you think about it and you notice in our comment, the level of, of, of hyper-visibility, you know, the self-awareness to while you're processing the death of your father to look around at the male ministers. And while you're entering into grief, you're simultaneously having to hold the, the injury and the trauma of those dirty looks, of the eye rolls, of the lack of, of acknowledgement, um, of the discomfort that you've, you feel from other people at your father's funeral. Um, and, and I wasn't there and she didn't go into too much detail about that, but I cannot imagine what that is like at a time that should be a space for healing, that at a time that should be a space for reflection and memory um, and entering into deep pain and, and grief, not to have to deal with that. Um, that let me know that this episode was striking a chord with people in a way that was different from some of the others, that people had really personal experiences. Um, so that was the first one, very brief, but... Yeah. Difficult. I actually have a friend who uh he wasn't the one speaking or anything, but he was a friend of someone who who died and it was a similar case to where either they were uh it, it was a woman speaker and either she was related to the deceased or very 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 good friends, like the person who would have the best relationship in which to give a eulogy. And it was the same dynamic where it was a black church context. And I do believe she ultimately was able to say a few words, but it wasn't without a fight. It wasn't without a battle and controversy over the fact that she was a woman speaking in this. And there's a special kind of hurt that comes, like you said, I mean, there's a dual hurt because you're processing the pain and the bereavement of somebody who has died. But at the same time, you're also processing this, you know, very patriarchal structure, how it impacts you, your ability to share your gifts. Um, and that is something that I'm grateful to women for sharing because, you know, this is not something that would necessarily come on my radar if I wasn't looking for it, but because 
uh, folks like uh, Reverend Dr. Sharon share this, I know to look for it and hopefully um, be part of the support uh, for for people in the church who've who've experienced this kind of pain. But but yeah, that's there heaping burden upon burden. It just it hurts. And I think and I think like how would we as men respond in that moment? Like, what could we do that was dignifying and affirming? And, you know, I, I know we probably don't have the answer for that in of ourselves. I think it would be presumptuous to, to think that, oh, we know the answer of how we should have responded in that environment. But I just, I think about it and I think about how there are women who sit on the platform at some of the funerals I'm at, and it's a difference. And then kind of how the ministerial fraternity of men, you know, kind of sits off to the side beforehand and kind of has certain, you know, conversation as, okay, this is a private fraternity. We know everyone, we know what happens. It's kind of like a, kind of a rite of passage. As soon as you get, as a young minister, if you get brought into that like little conversation with the family or before, um, you know, separate from the family before the funeral, it's kind of like this rite of passage, like, oh, you've arrived. If they, you know, acknowledge you and they're starting to talk about like intimate personal church stuff. And it's like, how how would that like how otherizing is that for the women who are ordained and who have been even more educated than I am, you know, more educated than some of us, and they're still having to deal with that that otherizing um, and how that is. And so, I think it's important for us to continually make space for Black women who are listening to vent that, to be honest about that, but also to listen and to center their perspectives. Um, as Truth's Table does so well, but to be honest about, man, maybe we maybe we need to refashion how we we approach all of this um, as it relates to women within the church. Can we get really um, real? I mean, I don't even know what yeah. the other stuff you're having, but yeah. as we think about the Me Too and the Church Too movement, a lot of the major press and headlines, at least that's come across my feed, has focused on white churches, white denominations. Hmm. Yeah. And... Dude, the black church has a big me massive. Oh that's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. It's like all of this will be found out. Um, and if we look, the Lord is giving us an opportunity right now as we observe what's happening in other churches, other Christian traditions, other denominations. Black churches have the opportunity now to address some of that same stuff that's happening. Yeah, yeah. but it just hasn't been, you know, on a, on a headline somewhere. But it's still hurting people. So it has to be addressed. Yeah, I mean, you even take the like, you know, and I know I'm not trying to I've gotten in trouble in the past for like going at people. <laughs> so, you know, I'm an Abishai, so I just, yo, give me his head. <laughs> um let me let me go get his head and bring it back to you. Like that's the type of person I am. But, you know, even recently, like just being honest about like Aretha Franklin's funeral, you know, like yeah, <laughs> you yeah. deal with all that, like just the reality of, you know, a, a pastor, like a prominent pastor up there with Ariana Grande and like that whole thing and like what it meant and and how it was almost like, man, this is like, this is extremely otherizing and it's it's humiliating and it's, um, man, it's, it's a violation. She was violated in front of everyone, you know? And so- just sitting back there and seeing how we responded to that conversation and how it was, you know, people were like, oh man, this is going to be a massive thing. I was like, no, it's not. It's not going to be a massive thing. Mm. I know for a fact it's not going to be a massive thing because we protect the bishops. 
Like we protect the apostles. We protect those people who are quote unquote anointed. And that's something that has to change about us. Like we have to lead the charge in that. Especially the men. As young men in ministry. Yes. Yeah, yes, as men, like we have to lead that charge. We have to clean up our own house. You know, like we can't let dudes that. get so, away with it. Like locker room yeah. talk is not okay. I don't care yeah. where it occurs. And that happens, man, that happens. Like I've I've been in some other s- scenarios and my father is a, a faithful man and, and he's been faithful to my mother. And so I haven't had that experience of being in those private conversations with, with pastors on a regular basis from my church who do that. But I do know, um, I have been in some other settings where people have said some things and I've just sat back and said, what in the world? Like how... These are pastors, like it's something you just kind of look to the side and you're like, really? And um, yeah, so much to say there. Uh, another one from uh, a young man named Michael. He reached out and said, "I just listened to the PTM episode about the Black Church. I'm so glad um, you want to hear stories from listeners. I've been wanting you guys to do an episode on the Black Church for a while now, so thanks for doing that. I feel like my experience is related to what y'all talked about in this episode, but I still feel like I might be an anomaly. So I'd love your thoughts." I'm 22 years old and I grew up in a black Pentecostal megachurch in Detroit. It's super charismatic. And although it's what I grew up with, I never really felt a connection with the high energy emotional stuff that would happen every Sunday. So I can resonate with the black Christians like me, who you described in the episode. I never really felt like I fit in. And at times I questioned whether or not I was even saved since I couldn't speak in tongues or exercise other charismatic gifts so openly. But my main concerns are about the theology I was presented with in that church. Most of what is taught there is heavily influenced by prosperity theology. The sermons are eisegetical in the way they treat scripture. My current understanding of the cross, the resurrection, salvation, and other theological essentials has come almost exclusively from places other than the black church. The black church culture that I lived in growing up and still see today comes across to me as often theologically deficient, prosperity gospel driven. I was left craving actual spiritual and theological solid food while all I was getting was milk. My experience in the black church left me frustrated. Other black churches I've been to are similar to the one I grew up in, so I can't help thinking that prosperity theology is normal throughout the black church. My perception of the black church has been a bit soured. And meanwhile, my involvement in the evangelical world exposed me to a more multi-ethnic, theologically rigorous way of going about things. Um... This was tough for me, I think mainly because, you know, it's difficult because I fought my entire life to fight this perception that black churches are infiltrated and infected with the prosperity gospel, right? So one of the main things I talk about is like, man, it's not it's not all of the black churches, it's not even even a majority of black churches. I mean, there's so many faithful black churches. And so whenever people like Michael would say something like this to me, I would typically like respond like in a very knee jerk, like defensive way. Like don't, don't label black churches that way. Um, but the reality is, man, it has infiltrated black churches and it has infiltrated mega churches. And we have to be honest about that. And the fallout from that is that people have trust issues and people do not feel like they can trust black churches because they resemble either famous black churches with, with black pastors who, um, you know, maybe gifted and anointed, may have um, some talent, may have some theological understanding, but are just consumed with always talking about financial gain. And, you know, as the Bible says, filthy lucre, the love of money. Um, and so it's it's heavy for me because I feel Michael's pain. I feel how soured he was. And when I read it, 
you know, my knee jerk was to be like, ah, man, you know, this, this, and that. And I, I haven't even, you know, Michael will know. Like, I, I'm still like processing a response. Like, how would I respond to this? Um, my encouragement and and my hope and my joy is that he's received clarity in his theological journey from somewhere, regardless of if it's in a black church or or anywhere else. Um, but also, my lament is that the place where you grow up in, you you don't feel like you fit in. And there's some ways of understanding it. There's some ways of of kind of processing it. But I think for introverts and for those who are kind of more head-driven, it's very difficult for some of us to identify with some of the Black church customs. And I think they're rich. And I think a lot of them have you know, some of the, the foundations of the cultures as far as whether it's emotive um, activity and behavior, even the charismatic Pentecostal stream. I think it has rich theological and historical root. But some of the abuses you just can't defend. And so for more introverted, intellectual, head-driven people, they often feel weird because people make them feel, even as he said, like they're not legitimately saved or they're not legitimately walking with the Lord because they don't do all the things that the more expressive, extroverted Christians do. So I read Michael's story through that lens (laughs) with just this really heavy sense that, you know, even as I quote unquote, defend the black church and laud it for so many things. I have to be honest when people bring up those critiques and I have to enter into that pain. It's a different type of pain, but I have to enter into that pain all the same. So yeah, that was heavy for me, man. Like yeah. black Pentecostal megachurch, that's like my space. That's my lane, you know? <laughs> so whenever I heard it, I was like, oh man, nah, man, nah, it's not all like that. And it's like, well, no, that's his experience. That's right. And to be to be honest with you, like that's a lot of people's experience. And I've heard that from people. And so I sit back and I say, you know, who am I um, to dismiss that? So. so I hear three separate issues. Uh, one is the internal versus external. So by that, I mean, yeah. the black church has been the subject of so much critique and debasement and ridicule that we actually have to do so much work just to defend the black church in a sense. Right. right? Like, <laughs> right. like, like right. at least right. to dispel oh, my the mischaracterizations, uh, yes. to dispel the myths out there about black churches and black church traditions. And, and that's why I think this series that we're doing is so important is because most of our time is spent um, debunking the, the the falsehoods and the mistruths out there about black churches. So we never actually get to the legitimate critiques. All of our energy is spent saying, no, it's not what you think. But then we don't have the same bandwidth to be able to say, well, here's what is happening and what needs to change. And so this conversation then is part of that internal facing conversation to where we're saying we're not defending this against all the abuses and and um, myths out there about it. We know that's happening, and we've I mean just go look at our look at our record, right? Like we have talked positively yeah. about the black church and need for the black church, all of that stuff. But now this allows us to get down into some of these experiences that may not be so pleasant. Um, simply because yeah. of we're dealing with human beings. The second issue is emotion. Em, um, I would say access through emotions and ac- access through intellect. 
Uh, yeah, that's dude. That's such a oh man. We're gonna talk so much about that at Joy and Justice. Yes. So if that's like something that you're kind of processing, we're really entering into that. But that is massive. Oh my goodness, talk about it's that. huge. It's huge. So a, a couple of things. One, we have to recognize the context in which Black church traditions, historically Black denominations, came up and where we are now. And they're two different things. Um, continuity, but discontinuity. So where, where, where black church traditions come in was developing a theology at the grassroots level from the bottom up, Yes, which yes. meant it was a, heavy on the ethical side. Um, it talked about emotions because it gave people space to feel their emotions, uh, process their emotions, bring them to God in ways that they could not do under slavery or Jim Crow or in the workplace where they're already denigrated, et cetera, et cetera. And so the black church traditions have gotten really good at that. At the same time, in the 21st century, post-civil rights movement and, and some of the legislative changes that have opened up access, we are the most educated generation of black people in terms of formal education, going yeah, to school, yeah. right? going to college, all that stuff, which, which is to say that we have learned in a more formal academic setting. And this is not to juxtapose one as better or worse emotion or into that's why I said access, right? There's, there's access and we need to access at both levels. But I think what is, what, what, it, what is done is developed a taste in folks, even black folks, for access at the emotional level. So that's th this is what I'm hearing when he's saying I learned, um, you know, th theological formulations outside yep. the black mm -hmm. church, right? Yes. Um, so the theology is there in the black church. It comes through differently. And I think actually formal theological education helps you hear theology better, mm -hmm. even when it's not as formulaic or academic, let's right. say. Um, right. So that's there. And, and, and I live there, too, as, as someone who's spent his whole life in schools. Um, I, I appreciate sort of a very kind of uh, logical um, step, step by step flow to yeah. if a B. You like them five points, bro. You like them five points. And, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, but you see it, you see it, you see it in, in like they, yeah, you know, some pastors that have a, a, a whiteboard or they'll have uh, the TV display. Here are the three points. Yeah. Here are the five points, et cetera, et cetera. That's all a style of learning. That's all a way of accessing yeah. the biblical mm -hmm. content. And I think as we get more and more educated, that becomes more and more common because we're used to that in school, right? We're used to that in a lot of different settings. And what we what we have to do is hold both of those, access through emotions and access through intellect, and not put one over the other, but realize that for a lot of people in their Black church tradition, it's still primarily access through emotions. And then there might be some people who are like, okay, I get it, but but how do I articulate this? Or how do I make sense of this in a different way? And so I hear that. Yeah. And then the last one, real briefly, is is the prosperity uh, gospel part, mm -hmm. which you mentioned yeah. already. And so all of those things intertwining makes for a very complicated uh, yeah. relationship with with your home church. Yeah, and also how we, you know, would even characterize embodied theology, like theology that engages not just our mind but our bodies. You know, because for so many years we've heard, and you know, I heard that emotions. Or something that were evil, 
that feelings were evil. You know, people say, don't trust your feelings. And it's, it's almost like they were saying, don't feel. Mm-hmm. And especially the feelings that we native, that are native to our culture, right? So like the the loud laughter, you know, or, you know, the celebratory, you know, cheer or something that, you know, the dance, which was just a natural reaction to someone, you know, seeing someone like people, we were recently, um, well, not recently, actually this morning, like um, with our young people, um, they were talking about something and they were mimicking the dance that they saw on the sidelines. Um, the Brooklyn Nets did this dance on the sidelines where their bench, whenever someone hit a three, they did this like this particular dance. I don't know what it's called. Now I'm feeling like an uncle. <laughs> I don't know what it's called. I've seen it. I've at they least were doing seen this, this dance. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So they were doing this dance and and they had said something. And whenever someone got a either a question right and it was like the Bible trivia or something, they were doing this dance. And I was like, man, that's just so natural and native to them. And I was like doing the dance with them and everything. And everybody was laughing. And I was just sitting back and I would say, yeah, that's like normal to our culture to like create things that would bring a community together and have a shared experience. So even when people are clapping, even when there's a praise break, there's like this communal power of us coming together is catharsis. It's us entering into something that's bigger than ourselves. So it's not just simply that, oh, we just want to get emotional, but it's like, man, in that moment, I actually feel connected to my brother. And it uses physicality to do it. Yeah. In the physical. So it's like, again, as I've said, like people don't think we can do both. So it's like the intellectual, like, oh, just tell us what it means. And it's like, yeah, I can tell you what it means, but if feels like fire shut up in my bones. <laughs> like, respond. It feels like I, I gotta I gotta shout. It feels like I gotta wave my hand. It feels like I gotta clap, preferably on the two and four. <laughs> and so because of that, you know, I think I think for 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 some of us who are introverted intellectual, you just like, man, what does this even mean? You know, and that access is sometimes it's difficult. It's like learning a left hand. But there is an abuse of that, which is the rejection of the word and the rejection of the deep truths of God in favor of more canned cliches and an emotional experience that tricks people into thinking you're saying something when really you're just you're just talking. Bruh, um, I mean, I want to get to these. And there's that the rest of these responses, but like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Like people know how to put together the pieces to get a response. Like that's yes. what so many yes. people I was reading James Baldwin and the fire next time where he talks about becoming a boy preacher. He was, you know, 12 years old and he started preaching and he knew how to preach in such a way that people would stand up, clap, yell, amen, et cetera, et cetera. And yet he wasn't even feeling it. And it was partly that sort of formulaic kind of playing on people's emotions that ultimately led led him to distance himself from the church mm. because yeah. he had seen so many preachers and then he knew from experience himself that you could go through all the motions and not really mm. be devoted to, to to Jesus at all right and and so yeah. there is that risk of people just being dynamic speakers and knowing all of the right phrases, all the right timing, all the right tonality, and being an excellent sort of performer. But that's all it is. It's a performance. Mm-hmm. And that happens yeah. 
more times than it ought. Any time is is too much. Yeah, but 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 I mean, part of that is you know it's James Baldwin, so yeah, <laughs> you know you operating on a different level. So of course you're gonna get a response, bro. Like I don't know, that brother came yeah. out writing beautiful, speaking beautiful, all that. So I'm like, yeah, you know, of course, you know, I'm sure you got a lot of responses, but I do think there is like this formulaic sometimes sense where is this real? And it's it's always a challenge because we're all facing it, you know we're all facing this challenge of, ah, man, well, you know, like, I don't know if I can actually believe this this pastor when he says, you know, um, if you got joy, shout or something like that, because it's just, oh, they're just trying to get a response and they go take an offering, you know? <laughs> I mean, right, that's just right. like how, yeah. that's just how people have, have set it up. But yeah, that's, that's um, we need to talk about that in the next episode too, um, in part three of this. Um, Want to read another reflection from Ron. Uh, thank you guys again, just for, for, uh, sending these in. We just have two more. Ron, he said, in regards to the last question on the podcast, I grew up in the black church, but got put off due to some super shady dealings by the local bishop. I actually swore off church for several years due to this situation. Moved to a different state after college and got looped into some evangelical churches. Met my wife and got deeply involved with an urban ministry. Through the urban ministry, we would bring black kids to this almost entirely white church. The election brought out some really ugly behaviors that helped to explain some of the treatment I ignored years earlier. We left that SBC church to go to a mega church that, while still evangelical, they aren't political and are heavily involved in the community I minister to. I'm happy there for now, but it still feels temporary since they don't address issues of justice from the pulpit, and it's little to no color in leadership. It's another one of these choices, man. Like You have these false choices of things that you have to... It's Mm -hmm. just tough. I'm not all that interested in going back to a black church due to the childhood experience and proximity to the community I'm invested in. All the black churches are on the east side of town, and I live on the northwest side. Sometimes I feel like the only way to truly belong is just to start my own, but I also believe that's part of the problem with the church now. Hmm. Yeah, so this is kind of like I, I, I separated these in categories. So we have, you know, we talked about massage noir and centering black women. We talked about kind of this this experience of church itself that could be off-putting for people with different personalities. And now we talk about like this, this borderline worship of people in positions of power and this borderline worship, we call it honor, (laughs) but it's really something else of people who have titles in our church. And the flip side of that is that, you know, the positive side is that we honor people. And so People come to the church and feel like they receive a dignity they won't receive in other spaces. And that's historically what's happened in the black church. But then the flip side of it is that we're dealing with serious, you know, person worship. <laughs> like we're dealing with serious person elevation. And when they fail or when they do something, because everyone will, when they do something that, you know, harms you or when they do something that offends you or when they do something you don't understand now your faith i mean he said i swore off church for several years due to the situation you have to sit back and say that's that's a heavy weight and responsibility for all pastors but especially in an area in a church tradition that elevates the particularly the man of god but it could be the man or woman of god in certain uh, settings but it's typically the man of god above his place above where he should be recognizing that you know, pastors and elders, we need the same things that every other person in our congregation needs, which is accountability, which is community, which is fellowship, which is rebuke sometimes, which is challenge. 
And I've seen that, you know, using and misusing scriptures like touch not my anointed, um, you know, don't put your mouth on the man of God and all these other phrases and all these other things that tend to happen can actually have a, a negative effect. They can actually elevate the pastor to this almost demigod status. And that's so unhealthy. Um, anyone who is elevated above their humanity um, is, is bound to, to disappoint you. And so I felt wrong when he said that. And I was like, man, you know, and then, you know, having to deal with all these different choices of man. So I go to, I had to leave the SBC church and I have to go to another white mega church, but I still feel like something's missing. And then I don't want, you know, I want to start. And we talked, we were talking about this before, like this whole idea of a lot of black churches end up starting out of division or, you know, people in despair, people being discouraged or disgruntled, not out of like healthy succession or not out of planting. Um, so I felt just so many different things <laughs> when I was reading Ron's comment and reflecting on it, because it's a story of so many people that are are listening to the podcast and have talked to us about it. I'll just say this: ecclesiology matters. Like, okay, Mr. Presbyterian, I was going to say, you, see, y'all get on me for having a Presbyterian background. Well, well see, no, like, <laughs> well, if you look in certain, in certain, in certain spaces, they do this better than others, no doubt, no certain doubt, spaces. In the black church, like, so you have your non-denominational, like, black church side, which is kind of where I grew up in, Pentecostal charismatic, um, very, like, personality driven, so less, you know, ecclesial, um, and, you know, cares about ecclesiology, but doesn't really have the structure because it's obviously, like, it's autonomous church, and so it's under associations and has covering, but that covering doesn't have the same teeth as, like, a, you know, a presbytery or something like that. And then you have some others that are more, like, liturgical and really care about that type of stuff, but still have their own little, you know, kinks and quirks. And so I don't want to speak to those guys and grow up in them, but you have some that are very detailed and structured, and then you have others that are kind of loose. And I think in both you run into problems because a system can protect you with you even as much as no system can, like, you know, no system can, you know, give you an out with accountability, but also like even a system can kind of hide some of the things that are going on. Um, even in heavy ecclesiology, but you're right. You're right. It does matter. It does matter. And I, I think that is one of the flaws is sometimes it's not as clear as it should be. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm drawn to more liturgical traditions because there is a clear system on paper for how things should work in terms of authority. Um, in in the tradition I'm most familiar with, Presbyterianism comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elders, which means every church is multiple elder led. And there are a lot of churches that say they have, you know, a board of trustees or, or a deacon board or whatever, but it's really just the senior pastor. A deacon board is a demon board, bro. <laughs> <That> de- <laughs> you know, it can it can get really stinky. Uh, and I can say that because we don't have a deacon board, so don't don't nobody call my church. We ain't got no deacon board, but the deacon board, demon board. But there's you know, say. and 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 not just about it, it's also connectional, so that what the they they call them church courts. There's the 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 smallest is the the congregational body. Uh, of elders there, and then you have a presbytery or a synod, depending on your tradition, and then you have the um, you know the general assembly and and whatnot. And so each court has more and more authority that is actually binding 
on other churches so that when you decide a theological matter, an ecclesiastical matter, or even a pastoral matter, you have to abide by it in order to stay in good standing. Now, like you said, it's a double-edged sword, right? So uh, with very high liturgical or very detailed ecclesiastical structures, it's hard to move swiftly. And that becomes a huge impediment culturally. <laughs> so that if you ding, need ding, to ding, change ding. something, man, <laughs> it don't change easy. Yeah. But then the flip yeah. side is there are some things that should be hard to change, right? Like, like if you have a pastor that's actually doing effective work, but he ticks off the wrong people and so they want to boot him out. No, you can't do that as easy as you can in some other churches. Or if sure, it's a theological sure. yeah. issue that you know, really needs clarity, but, but there are some people who want to change this and change that that takes, it's a deliberative process that, that, that many, many people are involved in, in the course of time. Mm -hmm. So you don't make a rash decision. So it can guard you in that way. Um, so, you know, and then, and then lastly, he's, he's in this position of, you know, living in a certain area and black churches are here, but there's church hurt there. I feel a very similar way. The church I go to is not the one I would necessarily put on paper. Like as, as you know, if I could craft my ideal church setting, it's small, it's predominantly white, it's rural. We go to church with farmers. We go to church with Trump voters, which is fine until you get into talking about politics, Oof. you know? Um, but it's, it's, it's our act of faith. It's our act of sure. faith to yeah. say, God, yeah. you gave us the church. To, you you mm -hmm. asked us to be the church. And although this is not necessarily the, the setting um, that we would have preferred or chosen ourselves, it's where you have us now. And it's not mm -hmm. evil. It, it's not it's not doing harm per se. And that's where I would draw the line. You know, if a church is doing evil, yeah. if a church is causing harm in, in the way the, the Bible explains, that's that's a time where you really need to consider are are we do we need to stay here do we want to work for change here or do we need to move <laughs> on yeah where i am it's not that situation it's just let this is less than ideal kind of socially and culturally yeah yeah no, that's helpful that's really helpful we need to get into more of that <laughs> next episode i keep saying that uh but we just have one more and i wanted to leave a little space uh to talk about this one in particular i'm not going to mention this person's name um for certain reasons but he reached out to me and said, as a product of the Black church within the Kojic tradition, I have a deep appreciation for how it shaped my religious sensibilities. It has and still functions as a refuge from white supremacy. One of the things I wish you two as my brothers would discuss in the future is the homophobia that exists in Black churches. As a gay Black man who has believed in the traditional sexual ethic, I experienced homophobia on multiple occasions. I've heard pastors call people who experience being gay or same-sex attracted names that are incredibly dehumanizing. As a result, I never felt the freedom as a teenager to entrust to youth leaders that I experienced same-sex attraction. I also come in contact with Black folks in their early 20s, like myself, who have a similar experience, and they see leaving the church as the only option. Many have left for other non-Christian spaces that do address the duality of being both Black and LGBTQ. I hope there's room for discussion on this matter. Thank you for reading this. Um, this was a tough one for me to read, I think, mainly because I have seen this in churches. I've seen this in Black churches. I've seen this in private conversations and in back rooms with pastors um, who have 
vented their own homophobia, um, who have just spewed homophobic rhetoric. And I feel um, ashamed that in many cases, the protection of the pastor or the man of God, um, whether it's a guest speaker or someone's church that I was visiting or something, um, that that took precedent um, over coming to solidarity with people like my brother who sent this to me. And he's 100% right. I mean, this young man will fall kind of on the side B side of um, this discussion, which side A um, for some of you, as we talk about, you know, um, LGBTQ within the church and Christianity, side A would probably be um, best ca- categorized as kind of a completely open and inclusive space um, so that everyone who does identify as LGBTQ can fully um, it, you know, participate in the church and in leadership positions, but also can um, be connected in relationship openly and LGBTQ relationships. And so there's just no restrictions on that. Um, and then the side B, um, which some of our friends at a Revoice Conference and um, like Wesley Hill and, and others have kind of um, led the charge on is this whole concept of staying true, honoring and acknowledging who you are in full, but staying true to the biblical um, sexual ethic um, as we have um, interpreted it. So we know that there are people who interpret um, sexual ethics differently. And so um, I don't even want to speak for the entire team as far as, you know, whether we're side B or don't believe in side A or side B, like it, I don't want to speak for anybody else on the team, but I'll just say from, from my perspective as someone who, who would fall in the side B camp, as we talk to our LGBTQ um, brothers and sisters and people who um, we interact with, um, the church needs to repent and the church needs to acknowledge the deep and traumatizing, in some cases, violent rhetoric um, that LGBTQ young people um, in particular, and even, um, and even older people who have, who have not, who have hid this part of themselves um, because they found no refuge in the church, or they found no safe person to disclose this to, um, that they've experienced. And one of the most difficult parts of being a youth pastor was uh, about six years ago, um, someone who was actually discipling came up to me and um, in a private moment um, felt extremely uncomfortable. Like he was just more uncomfortable than he had been before. And so I was just kind of sitting back. I was like, man, I what's going on? Like, are you okay? Like, you know, we can talk about anything. He's like, yeah, you said that a lot. You said we can talk about anything, but I don't, are you sure that we can talk about anything? I'm like, yeah, man, yo, we can talk about anything. Like what's, what's good. And he was like, I think I'm gay. And mm. I don't, I don't know how to tell my parents that. And I also don't want to go to hell. Wow. So, and I, I just remember being just so woefully ill-equipped to even answer the question um, of answer any theological questions or if theological questions were even necessary to answer in that moment, just sitting with him and talking with him and affirming him. And he said, I just genuinely thought you were never going to talk to me again after I said this. So that's why I was so 
um, ANSI. And um, we have a lot of we have a lot of work to do in creating spaces where people do not feel as though they cannot say anything to anyone, but there's no safety um, to work through, just have someone walk with them through, you know, what they're experiencing internally. And it is, it is, it is to our shame that um, LGBTQ young people commit suicide because there's no space for them to talk with an elder or pastor who's not going to mock them. Um, or that they just don't feel like they can even say anything and stay in their parents' house or all these other things. So regardless of the theological issues, I think there is a robust theological discussion that's happening. And I, you know, point you to places like Revoice and, and other people on and even other sides who have, you know, had debates or talked through this and and you know, so that you're hearing, you know, different perspectives on it and you know, but even as someone who holds to a traditional sexual ethic and uh, believes in that deeply. I, I just say it doesn't give any justification for homophobia and hatred and bigotry. It's a shame. And this, I couldn't mention this young man's name because he hasn't come out yet. Yeah. Thank you for trusting. <laughs> he came out to me to tell yeah. me this. Like he trusted me enough to, he, tr- he trusted me enough to share this. That's a huge, um, it's an honor. Yeah. Um, I think it is, bro. And that's why I told him, I just, I'm like, man, but, and I know, you know, this is like, this is a powder keg. So people are like, ah, oh, man, you know, you can't talk about this stuff. And I'm like, man, these are real people. Like you can't and, talk and, about and it. And if you like, that's, that's, I, it's wild. just, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I think we, as a, even we, as an organization, like how we, how we talk about it and that, what we say, and, you know, kind of coming to these conversations about it. And it's a shame, man. We've, the church has to repent. Like people, young people are committing suicide. They're committing suicide. And a lot of them, we use them for their gifts. Mm-hmm. We use them Say on that. a stage. Say we that. use them in a band. But we don't want to have anything to do with the ministries. Like we, we're, we're using their gifts. We're not affirming their dignity. We're not honoring them with, with our presence, with our love, with our care, with open arms. We're not walking with them. We're not defending them when people crack jokes yeah, about them behind. That's what gets me, man. They're back. Like we 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 make it into a joke. It's a shame, bro. Even from the pulpit, you know who who from who, the pulpit who, who hasn't like, chuckled. You've seen it. You know who hasn't chuckled when they said God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, and laughed it off. And I can just I can't even imagine, you know, being LGBTQ. In a congregation where where someone just said that, and and people around you who you know who know you, just laugh at it, laugh at your pain, you know, laugh at your situation in life. And I got a question. Um, a few weeks ago, when I was at a speaking engagement, and I was so grateful for it, even though I felt completely inadequate to answer or respond to it. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about yeah. the history of racism in the church, as I do. And uh, this person in the audience during the Q and A talk basically asked me to make a connection between racism and homophobia, and the ways that the church churches have abused, mistreated um, LGBTQ people. And I don't know if this at all satisfied the person who who asked the question or not, but the thing that came to mind was. 
going all the way back to the Protestant Reformation, like the core theological issue was salvation by faith alone. And and so it was mm-hmm. it, that was the thing, right? That was the thing that 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 set it off and that sparked this whole movement of which, you know, most of us are are who are listening to this are probably a part of some Protestant Christian tradition. And I think if there's going to be a reformation in the 21st century, then the theological issue that it'll hinge upon is the Imago Dei. It is conceptualizing for our time what it means to be made in the image of God, not just individually, but collectively. And so that speaks to race and ethnicity and nationality and people groups, but also how that applies in our day, which has rapidly changed from even 10 years ago, let alone 50 or 100 years ago, in terms of our context and climate with regard to LGBTQ community and how we as a church respond to that. And I don't think we can actually respond in a loving, empathetic manner, even just to the point of listening, where we, it, why is it even a conversation that we can, that, that, whether we should have a conversation about this, right? Like that, that right. shouldn't even be exact at the at base, a base level. level. That should everything's on the table for for the body of Christ to at least discuss, and and better yet, uh, for people in the majority in whatever way to shut up and listen. And so, yeah, but the but see, black churches we we struggle with that. Like that's like the touching the third rail. Like that's one of those things where you're like, well, you can't talk about this, and and if you do, it's got to be. You know, it's got to be done in a certain way to where we're not questioning you and all. It's like, bro, what is? Why are we so pressed about this? And it's important, and it's it's valuable, and it's it's a key theological issue. But we need to have open, robust discussion, and we need to acknowledge some of some of our own blind spots. And if we don't do that, we're not going to approach this with any humility and love and care. And people are going to feel pushed away, just like this young exactly. man does. Because at the end of the day, it's about people. Um, wherever you fall on this, on this topic, on this, on this really important life experience of folks, it's about people. And there was no one who Jesus didn't approach. There was no one who Jesus didn't invite in. There was no one who Jesus said, "Mm, that's too controversial, or we disagree on this. We can't talk. He, he, He took, he took in tax collectors. He took in uh, 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 prostitutes. He took in uh, yeah. lepers. Whoever it was, the standard was repent and believe. Do you have the humility mm-hmm. to admit who you need in this Christ? Right, and and as we emulate our Savior, there's no person we can't at least talk to. There's no person who we should be scandalized and for love, being in, in their presence. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and love, oh, of course. man, like love Absolutely. well, you know, and which and is a whole other topic, right? Like, how do you dignity. love well if you disagree? You know. <laughs> yeah, that's that's no, that's something that we. Yeah, been in a number of situations where I felt like, oh man, like nothing coming to the realization, like, okay, well, if I hold this, this this stance and if I hold this theological conviction that nothing I say is going to be adequate, you know? So then it's like, man, what do I, how do I love my neighbor? Um, yeah, I think that's, that's important, you know, listening even in that, in that context. Yeah, it's important. Um, man, we know we talked, I told Jamar jokingly before and I was like, man, 
it's not gonna be like an hour or anything. <laughs> and and it ended up being that. But I just wanted to hold space for all these people who have just shared and some of the ones we didn't even get a chance to read, some of these reflections. Um, thank you so much for your courage, for your bravery, yeah. your sharing. You don't know us, like we're podcast dudes. You don't really know us face to face. I haven't met any of these people face to face. So I recognize that that's like a huge leap to tell your story and then hear it on a podcast or something. But yeah, thank grant you. us grace um, if we misspoke or said anything yeah. out of turn. Um, please. Yeah, yeah. please. Um, we just, we love you guys. And as much as as podcast hosts can love people over the, these these mics and laptops, um, we love and honor and um, we love and honor each of you and we hold space for you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.